So today, we remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Okay? There is a simple statement for us to start our thinking today about resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead about 2,000 years ago. And as I indicated last week, for those of you who were here, what I am seeking to impart to you is to say that Easter is something that is intensely personal. It is not just an important historical fact, as good as that is, and we rejoice in that. It is not just the teaching of the church that has come down through the ages, where we teach about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as important as that is. It is something that is intensely personal. This Easter, from Palm Sunday through to today, we're thinking about two things, principally. First of all, that we are united with Jesus in his death. And the second thing is that we are united with Jesus in his resurrection. The death was last week. We looked at that on Palm Sunday. And today we are thinking about being united with Jesus in his resurrection. So we are united. We have a vital personal union with Jesus in his death and resurrection if we are a Christian. That is, if we are a believer of Jesus. In the case of being united with Jesus in death, Jesus' death became our death. The penalty paid by him was the penalty paid by us. That's what we looked at last week. We are united with Jesus in death. Jesus' death became our death because we were united with him by faith in him. The penalty paid by him is the penalty paid by us in him. And we thought about the idea of an envelope, an envelope with a letter in it. Jesus is like the envelope and we are like the letter in it. Those two go together, they travel together. So whatever happens to the envelope happens to the letter. Jesus died, we died. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, we pay the penalty for our sin. But of course, being in him, being inside the letter or being inside of Christ. And we saw, if I can now take you to Romans chapter 6, verse 5, on page 2 of your order of service. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that's what we got up to in our thinking. We have been united with him in a death like his. And of course, his death was upon that cross. We didn't actually die physically that death. He alone had to do that. But we are united with him in his death. Now, that's the past. That's what we've been looking at. What we're thinking about today is how we are united with him in his resurrection. And that is the rest of that Romans 6 verse 5 verse. So, if, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, what happened to Jesus happens to us. Jesus was raised from the dead. We will be raised or are raised from the dead. It's that same envelope thing. What happens to the envelope or what happens to the letter has happened to the envelope already. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We will be, and I think are, raised from the dead. And that's what we're going to be thinking about. So being united with Jesus in his resurrection means 
three things. And I'd like you to go back now to the uh, Bible talk passage, which is on page nine, so that you can follow that, because we have some really wonderful truths to look at. Being united with Jesus in his resurrection means three things. First of all, that we will be raised from the dead. That's the first thing we'll look at. Secondly, it means that we are already raised from the dead now. And thirdly, that we are to live a new life now. They're the three points we'll think about. So let me read to you from Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 14. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. A very helpful and practical passage for us. Well, the first point, we will be raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead, as we have considered, and we will be raised from the dead. One day, Jesus will return. All people will be raised from the dead to face judgment. That is, the good and the bad, the unfaithful, the faithful, everyone who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. When Jesus does return, it's not as though there won't be other people who are already living at that time. Those people won't need to be raised to face judgment. They will already be alive. But for all people who have ever lived, they will all be raised to face judgment. Those who trust in Jesus will enter into the fullness of eternal life. And those who have not trusted in Jesus will enter into the fullness of eternal punishment. But we are told that we will be raised from the dead. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So that is a forward-looking statement. That is saying that we will live with Christ. We can be sure that we will live with Christ that we will be raised from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. Have a look at those wonderful words in verses 9 and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, so there you are, he was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. It wasn't a resuscitation. He, he incurred a resurrection. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus is the proof of our resurrection that is to come. Because Jesus Christ has been raised, and that is a fact, we can be assured of our resurrection as a fact because we are united with him. Now, how should this affect us? That is the biblical thinking and teaching behind this so far. How should this actually affect us? Well, how does 
the fact that there is life beyond the grave impact you or how should it impact you? I think at the very least, it should cause us not to be anxious about illness or sickness because we know that there is life beyond the grave in the case of the worst scenario as we would perceive it in this world of death. We ought not to be anxious facing sickness. Secondly, I don't think we should worry about a bucket list. Perhaps there is a list in your mind of all these things that you'd like to do before you die. Some people are very vigorous about going about it and very defensive of their plans. And of course, COVID upset that a very great deal, didn't it? People didn't get to go to the Taj Mahal or wherever in the world to have their photo taken or, or what have you. I think it also impacts us by encouraging us to be generous in our time and our resources because we know that there is life that will go on forever and ever and we will do so secure in God. It's a very important thing to know that we actually have life beyond death, life beyond the grave, very practical for us. So that is the first point. We will be raised from the dead, and we principally see that in verse 8. The second point is this. We are already raised from the dead now. Okay, so we're now building up in our thinking and perhaps also our stimulation of our mind. We are already raised from the dead now, verse 8 can be read not only in the future sense, but also in the present sense. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That is, that we are living with Christ now. We have resurrected life now. That is, of course, spiritually speaking. We see this also in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is, alive to Christ Jesus, or alive, sorry, to God in Christ Jesus now. We see it in verse 13 in the second clause, where it's in the, uh, it begins with the words, but rather, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That offering of yourself to God is right now as those who've been brought from death to life. So we are people who have life now, spiritual life now, or in other words, resurrected life now. In another part of Romans, which you don't have printed, I'll just read it to you. Chapter 8, verse 11, it says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That is speaking of spiritual life now. God, by his Holy Spirit, living in us, bringing us that resurrected life. And we see it in one other place that I will mention, and that is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. It's particularly verse 6 I want to quote, but verses 4 and 5 are so helpful for us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And here's verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So I ask you just a basic comprehension question for you to answer quietly. Where are we now? 
Well, what does verse 6 say? We have been raised up with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. But aren't you seated in a pew here at St. John's in Mudgee? Well, you are simultaneously seated in a pew at St. John's Mudgee, but you are also seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. People who aren't Christians are not seated beside you in the heavenly realms. They're not even seated beside you here at St. John's in Mudgee. Only Christians have that privilege. You are at this very moment seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have resurrected life now. We have already entered into eternal life. That is, of course, if your faith is in Jesus, you're a believer of Jesus. You have that resurrected life now. You have eternal life. So death is not a problem. Death will come unless Jesus returns first. But for the vast majority of people, I think it's going to be the case that death will come to us physically. But we need not be concerned about that because that's only uh, momentary because we are people who have eternal life now. So do you consider this to be a privilege? that you are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that you are someone who has, been, who has resurrected life now. Do you consider that to be a wonderful privilege? It should be a great privilege for us. We should realise that. Sinclair B. Ferguson is a theologian and preacher who I've quoted before, and he would end most of his sermons by actually saying, what a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Fortunately, his sermons got to that point where that was just an obvious statement to make and it was something that he would rejoice in. But it's true, isn't it? We have resurrected life now. We are already raised from the dead now and seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful privilege. What a wonderful thing to be a Christian. So... We will be raised from the dead one day when Jesus returns and enter into the fullness of eternal life, but we are already raised from the dead now. Now, this has implications for us, apart from the ones that I've already mentioned. And that is, we are to live a new life now. Verses 11 to 14 is what we're going to consider in uh, chapter 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So verse 11 says, count yourselves dead to sin. Count yourselves dead to sin. What that means is this, that you are separated from the rule of sin. Count that to be true. Consider that to be true. Meditate upon that fact as it is true, that you are separated now as a Christian from the rule of sin. When you're a non-Christian, not a Christian in other words, you are not separated from the rule of sin. 
You are bound by the rule of sin. You are ruled or mastered by sin. You will do what sin wants for you. But that is no longer the situation for us. And we see in verses 12 and 13 very strong commands. In fact, an outright prohibition about letting sin reign in our life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. We are to make it our practice to never, ever let sin hold sway over our lives. We learned last week that we have died to sin in Jesus Christ. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. Sin has no more claim on us. Our old life has been finished. Our new life has begun. Our old self was crucified with Jesus. Our body ruled by sin has been done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free from sin. They are truths drawn from last week's passage and the Bible talk based upon it. We are separated now from the rule of sin. However, we are still affected by sin. We acknowledged that last week and we can acknowledge it again today. We don't go around as sinless people. We still commit sin. We are separated from the rule of sin, but we are still affected by sin. And it's just, though, that as a Christian, we don't have to obey what sin wants. When we are ruled by sin as a non-Christian, we just do it outright. We don't even think about the consequences or the issues. We just do what we want and what sin wants. But now as a Christian, we have a choice and we are able to not be ruled by the power of sin and obey its desires. So given that we are affected by sin, we get these really strong commands. Verse 12 is very, very strong. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. When you look at the original language and you look at the commentary that surrounds it about the various original words that are used, all sorts of sirens are going off when you come to this verse, like the commentators are getting really excited and they're saying, look at this, notice this, look at the grammatical use of words here. Um, this is a major, major thing not to, to do in the Christian life. Like The sirens are definitely going off when it comes to this verse. It's a little bit more tame when we read it. But therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body is, of course, the truth that needs to be conveyed. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, I think this is very interesting because it's very clear guidance for us in how to engage in this world. I don't think many Christians really appreciate how powerful sin is. Sin, its evil desires, it is very, very powerful and it is there as a constant issue every second of the day. Even though we are people who are transformed by Christ, we are still people who are affected and at war against sin. If you don't think that you're at war with sin, then you haven't understood the power of sin. Sin is incredibly powerful. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. There was the story of Cain and Abel and their offering of worship and sacrifice to God. And the Lord said to, to Cain, when he was thinking about 
knocking off Abel because he'd given him a better, given God a better sacrifice. The Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Does that sound like engagement with sin to you? It certainly does to me and everything I've witnessed of the Christian life and in ministry. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to get you, to have you, but you must rule over it. Or to use the words of our passage, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. And you know what? Even after Cain got that warning, in the very next verse, in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Genesis, what did he do? He went out and murdered his brother. So even after being told by God himself, he still went out and committed that murder. Can you see how powerful the rule of sin is? How powerful sin is generally? Sin is incredibly powerful. So these verses are verses that you must sort of uh, inscribe in your heart somehow so that you are someone who does not fall foul. If you were to think about sin, a lot of people would think very loosely about what it is. I've mentioned murder as one example. Well, have you committed murder? Well, not to my knowledge. But if you look at Galatians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 6, it starts to reveal more for us. And this is edifying to think about. Sin wants you to commit sexual sexual immorality. It wants you to commit lust, to be impure in all sorts of ways, to be greedy, to hate one another, to be angry, to be in discord, to have fits of rage, to be malicious, to be slanderous, to use filthy language, to be drunk, to lie, to be jealous, and to harbour selfish ambition, just to name a few. But Galatians 5 and Colossians 3 are pretty good lists. When we're talking about sin, we're talking about those sorts of things that are very deep in our soul. I mean, selfish ambition, who hasn't been selfish? I mean, let alone the rest of them. But the Bible says in verse 13 of our passage, in that second clause which begins, but rather, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's what we should do instead. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. That's what is our goal. Now we need forgiveness. That list that I've just read out, no one is immune from being prosecuted there. We have all fallen short in some way, shape or form and obeyed the evil desires of sin. And the great news of Jesus Christ is that he died on that first Good Friday and he died for our sin. What he offered up in terms of his life was accepted by God. And because of that, we know that we are able to be forgiven for our sin. But of course, it's not just those sins that we need forgiveness for. We need to be forgiven for our rebellion against God. And there will be some who do not trust in Jesus Christ, who need to actually ask for forgiveness for rebelling against God. 
because that is, of course, the greatest sin. So we are united with Jesus in his resurrection. That is the theme of what we've been thinking about today. We are united with Jesus in his resurrection through a vital and personal union. And of course, this means that we will be raised from the dead. Maybe that was news for you today. It's news to a lot of people out there that I like to, to share. Not many people are aware that one day they will be raised from the dead. We are already raised from the dead now too. Did you know that? Consider it a massive, massive privilege that you are already raised from the dead now and seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And what we've also learned is that we are to live a new life now. Well, have you realised the great privilege of being united with Jesus in his resurrection? And can you see the, the new life that you ought to live now? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that Jesus was raised from the dead. We thank you that he cannot die again. We thank you that death no longer has mastery over him. We thank you that we are united with him in a death like his and that we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Please prevent us from living in sin and instead enable us by your Holy Spirit to live a new life of holiness in Christ Jesus, trusting in his forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.